You'd think that the person who wins the title of national kickboxing champion would be the best kickboxer in the country, right? I mean, how could it be otherwise? Well, in 1999, author and podcaster Tim Ferriss took a bet from one of his friends to become the Chinese national kickboxing champion with less than four weeks to prepare. He was fit, but not a competitive kickboxer by any means. Kickboxers are paired up by weight, so each player had to be officially weighed in. Weigh-ins happened the day before the match, and Ferris figured out how he could lose 28 pounds in 18 hours to weigh in at 165 pounds. Then, through what he calls hyperhydrating, he would increase his body weight the day of the match to 193 pounds. If that sounds insane and harmful to your health, it probably is, but he did it under medical supervision. He noticed a rule that said that if one combatant fell off the elevated platform three times in a single round, his opponent won by default. So Ferris decided to become the best pusher since he was clearly not the best kickboxer. So, with a 28-pound advantage over his rivals and the goal of pushing them off the platform, he won all of his matches by technical knockout and became the Chinese national kickboxing champion. Whether you think this is good or bad, whether it's in the spirit of competition or not, his win was, as they say, perfectly legal. Did Ferris's win advance the goals of those who govern the sport? Not really. Were the judges happy to give Ferris the gold medal? Not at all. In fact, Ferris's publicity was generally bad for the sport, but he did take home the medal. So here's the question. Say you're running a sales incentive. Would your business objectives be properly served by awarding the top award to a rep with a technical win, but really wasn't the best rep on the team? Well, that's what we're going to explore in this episode, the benefits of good rules in your incentive programs. We're going to talk to some experts about their experiences with writing rules, a researcher that studies incentive rules in the lab and in the field, and we'll leave you with four massive tips, each one powered by behavioral science, on how to make your next sales incentive more effective. Welcome to Motivation Insiders, the podcast that helps you improve your incentives and recognition programs by hearing from experts in the field, as well as some of the best behavioral science researchers on the planet. I'm your host, Tim Houlihan, and I have more than 20 years of experience in designing, implementing, and researching incentive programs. I'm also the host of the Behavioral Grooves podcast and invite you to check that out. Motivation Insiders is a series produced under the direction of the Incentive Marketing Association and its affiliate, the Board of Directors for the Incentive and Engagement Solution Providers. So a shout out to IMA IESP for generating the concept for this production. And we also want to give a shout out to the sponsor for this episode, 110. 110 is a full service marketing agency all about motivating people, whether that be employees, channel partners, dealers, or customers, 110 provides incentive and recognition programs that will help to inspire teams to sell more, stay longer, and increase loyalty to your organization. Check them out on the web at www.110marketing.com. And thank you to the folks at 110 for helping us get this episode off the ground. 
When we think about rules for sales incentives or loyalty programs, several thoughts come to mind. Rules define who's eligible to play, the number of players in the field, when to start and stop play, and what counts as a score. If the rules are not designed properly, incentive programs can work against your objectives. And because we can't just recognize the top performers and leave it at that, we need rules. Let's start by exploring some common problems. Here's Lincoln Smith, the Chief Strategy Officer at HMI Performance Incentives. Lincoln is a seasoned veteran in the industry and has had a front row seat to clients developing rules for their programs. Lincoln and I talked about some of the most important steps to take in developing a good design for your program. I think that in the program design, being able to look at the data, doing the proper segmentation, prioritizing whom the right targeted audiences need to be, experimenting, testing, validating, and then being able to roll out the right strategy is super important. And then the measurement, you know, are we living up to the goals and objectives and the hypothesis that we had? And we need to do that not at the conclusion of a program, but at every lifestyle stage of it. So after 30 days, 90 days, 120 days, but this should be an ongoing evaluation to make sure that the behaviors that we're looking to be driving towards, in fact, are. Lincoln teed up lots of important aspects to a program success, but let's start with some common mistakes made by rule designers. Regrettably, program designers may never get the feedback that their rules were unsatisfactory, but the program results will definitely show it. Most importantly, these problems are totally avoidable. So let's get started. The first common problem is that the rules don't make sense. The reps are being asked to do something that they're not trained for or being told that the metrics for the program aren't aligned with the ways that they're currently being measured. Rules that don't make sense don't serve the program well at all. So let's dig a little deeper with the help of Dr. David Cox, who is the CEO at Motiforce, a UK-based agency that works with companies to design and implement incentive and recognition programs. He also earned a PhD in loyalty marketing. David suggests that good rules for an incentive program are mutually understood and generally agreed upon by everyone involved. Loyalty and incentive programs focus on expectations. And you need to meet those expectations. If you don't have the right rule structure, then those expectations can vary. And I've seen a number of programs completely collapse into disarray simply because people don't know what they're going to be rewarded for and what they're supposed to do. It's ironic that one of the most common trouble spots is something as intuitive as clearly communicating what participants are supposed to do. It's sad, but true. The second common problem is that the rule designers fail to keep the rules simple and straightforward. With the desire to make sure that everything is covered, the designers can easily stray from the KISS principle, you know, keep it simple, stupid. David elaborates on this to emphasize the vital connection between the rules and the ROI that the program delivers. The, the second area that clients make a big mistake in is trying to make programs too complicated. They try and ensure that it covers every angle and every behavior when in actual fact you need to stream down to what's going to drive the greatest value and hence then the greatest return on investment. 
When trying to write rules that prevent people like Tim Ferriss from winning the championship, designers often get caught in the trap of making a long list of prohibitions, things that the participants aren't allowed to do. But the reality is that most people aren't going to cheat because cheating translates to social ridicule or possibly losing your job. Yes, some will, but typically most do not. That doesn't mean to be laxed, but don't write the rules with the encyclopedia of all things that can go wrong at your side. The third common problem is that the rules aren't relevant to either the business objectives or to the participants in the program. Similar to the first issue of rules not making sense, when rules rack relevance to their roles, participants check out. Designers need to measure and focus on metrics and behaviors that are relevant to the program's goals. Rules shouldn't only focus on the results, but on the processes and the behaviors necessary to achieve those results. And that isn't always easy. Matching up specific behaviors and the appropriate measures to the specific business objectives can be difficult, but rewarding. As the carpenters say, measure twice, cut once. And sometimes programs get designed with only the finish line in mind and fail to take into account the distance the reps need to traverse to reach the finish line. Let's listen to what Lincoln has to say about that. There's always a primary business goal, but there are multiple KPIs that should be followed underneath that to help support and measure that you're on the right track. So what can we do about it? What are the hacks that will help the writers of rules reduce the likelihood for ruination? By the way, did you catch that little bit of alliteration there? Okay, back to the topic at hand. Let's look at what makes good rules when designing an incentive program. The first important thing to remember is to write rules in a way that are familiar to the audience you're trying to engage. The data, timing, eligibility, trends in the business, metrics, all of these things should be available and transparent to the participants. Don't throw any monkey wrenches into the wheels by tagging on something clever and new midstream. Just reduce the friction required to participate by making things familiar. In this area, we turn to another PhD, a researcher at UCLA named Jana Gallas, whose work in incentives is the academic pursuit of what makes a good rule. Her research teases apart rules and rewards to help us understand what rules cause the biggest improvements in performance. Professor Gallus shared a cool way to think about rules with me when we talked. I think in general, what makes a good rule is if it offers a bright line. Right. If it offers a line that is that you can't redefine ex post or that doesn't allow for a lot of degrees of freedom in the interpretation of what the rule means, but rather it's a clear thing. A bright line. Oh, that's a great way to think about your rules. It's important to write your rules so clearly that there can be no arguing after the fact or what Professor Gallus refers to as ex post. Do your rules clearly identify who is in, what is being counted, and when the measurement period starts and ends? If the rule doesn't contain a bright line that is big and easy to follow, then you need to rethink it. (music) 
The second big tip is KISS, the old keep it simple stupid rule. If your rule indicates that reps get credit for only the 60% of the gross margin on full price orders of the 1000 series products sold to non-national accounts acquired on or after January 19th with Brent Standard Pricing, well, you're on your way to losing your ability to engage your reps. So think about the way Professor Gallus puts it. In my work with organizations, I've sometimes seen incentive programs that are so complex that it even takes me a good amount of time to understand it, even if I have all the data in front of me. I think simplicity is important um, from an employee's perspective to understand. It's not enough to just see here are the rules, but in fact, you need to feel like I really understand what the rules are. And sometimes that I don't see that given. I think there are so many um, purportedly transparent incentives, but at the end of the day, if you really go down and ask what who which newcomer also understands the rules, you've, you'll realize that it's only a small fraction of people who actually do, and perhaps even not even the incentive setters understand the, the the rules in their entirety and their implications across different contexts and workers. This newcomer lens is a good one. And David Cox also weighed in on this very topic. Like any sporting game, a good game is when everybody knows the rules and, and how to play them. And, and if you want something to, to develop into chaos and not be entertaining for the people who are on the field and for the spectators and for the people who invested in the program, then the whole thing is actually going to collapse. And the rules are the plasma that drives a program. If you don't have them, you don't have a functioning working body. And that's why they're critical to the success. The next important tip is to make sure that the rules are relevant. And relevance is, well, relevant. (laughs) The principles of likeness and similarity are essential for engagement, like the way we are more comfortable with people we consider to be part of our own group, our tribe, or our team. More people will engage at higher levels if they feel like the rules pertain to them. We're talking about participation-based incentives, right? So you are, it's an incentive where the rule is, Basically, something makes you a member of a group and you are a member of the family, let's say, of the group. And um, then what you do within that group is fairly free. You're free to to behave um, and to perform as you please. But still, there can be important social incentives because you want to be a worthy member of the group, right? So there you have fewer rules potentially or fewer explicitly spelled out rules and still find that people do their best to not let the others down, to not let the team down, right? So there is also... And when we were talking to Lincoln, he brought up how important it is to focus on behaviors that will drive the results of the program. Here, he lists many to consider. What should we measure is actually one of the, more of the starting point a lot of times, isn't it? Is, uh, it? It's really tied to the ultimate program goal. And, you know, then what elements can we measure that will allow us to know that we're on the right track of reaching that goal or once that goal has been achieved? And the easy measurement is always just sales. You know, did you get the sales volume to X and then, you know, would that be the measurement? But in, in my experience, especially over the last several years, it's become more sophisticated with different behaviors in essentially uh, different steps of the sale are becoming more and more important to actually be being measured. 
So a lot of times it might have to do with, um, you know, the enrollment rates, engagement rates. It might have to do not with the sales transaction. It actually might have to do with certification or training. It also might have to do with uh, the types of referrals that are being given to us. Um, you know, even tying in social media, such as uh, likes or shares around a particular brand or product can also be very uh, important elements to be measuring to kind of figure out, are we on track to meeting whatever the ultimate program goal is? We can probably reason our way through this step and uh, the other two tips. Some might even say that they're intuitive. However, if they were so intuitive, they wouldn't end up causing so much trouble. Avoid letting any of these tips into your blind spot by keeping them top of mind. The next tip is to think like scientists, to test and measure and develop novel ways of looking at the problem that you're trying to solve. Our best work comes about when designers let go of their emotional pillars that hold up our preconceived notions that there's only one way to deploy a program, and we start focusing on the data and the actual behaviors. You'll learn something new every time. Lincoln talked me through a test he did with a client program recently. The client wanted to grow their customer base by employing either a growth goal or a general point system. They weren't sure. So Lincoln's team set up three cohorts. All three groups were given the same reward system, the same program themes, and the same frequency of communication. The A group was rewarded for growth of overall spend. The B group was rewarded for loyalty to a specific product line, and the C group received no incentive at all. Lincoln noted that the data tells the story, not our emotions. And um, what was really fascinating about it is that um, there was 11% delta between the C group, which didn't receive any incentive at all, compared to the AB group. What really the client took away from that was that having an incentive program and a properly communicated program that offered added value to their customer channel actually drove significant results. Tim, what's exciting about you know thinking like a scientist and doing experimentation is um, so important is that it allows you to be very uh, objective with your results. And there's a lot of emotions and there is a lot of preconceived thoughts and ideas that every stakeholder brings to the table when we think about designing an incentive program. But at the end of the day, the data and the results and the output is going to be very black and white. Professor Gallus acknowledged that running tests in a world where companies live and die by quarterly earnings is more critical than ever. A program idea may point you in the right direction of the target, but a good test will get you on the target and even closer to the bullseye. Test. Set up the, ideally set this up in a way that allows you to test what, whether you achieve the goals that you set for, up for yourself. So run small or ideally, you know, ha- well-powered um, field experiments where you have a control group and then a treatment group that gets the new kind of incentive and then measure the outcome and see whether the people in your treatment group perform significantly better than those in the control group. And here, of course... Our experts reminded us of some other key points as well. Like, don't let the program grow old. 
Now, this is especially true of long-term loyalty programs that need to sustain themselves for years. And it also goes for sales incentive programs that might only last two or three months. You'll get better results from your reps if you run more short-term programs than to try to string them together into one big long-term program. And it's also important to make sure that the program is focused on the actual demographics of the participants, not the designer. David Cox reminded us of that. I am the mirror of the people who are going to be in the program. You know, I I draw myself in the sand and everybody else is that. So you use yourself as the point of reference for the for the average participant or the average profile. That's just a recipe for disaster. And Professor Gallus reminded me that more winners are better than fewer winners. So structure the program so that they are thresholds that everyone can run toward rather than a competitive race where only a top few win. No one intends to design a program with rules that allow the Tim Ferrises of your sales force to earn the big prize on a technical knockout. So make sure you're writing rules that don't just prevent it from happening, but give your participants something to guide them that is meaningful to them and to you. So now a quick review of this episode. We talked about the following tips to design good rules. The first is measure something familiar. So there's no dispute or concern about the data, and the participants can just more easily engage in the accuracy of the reporting. The second was KISS. It helps everybody. Both designers and the participants benefit from simplicity. The third tip was measure something relevant so that your measuring actually points to the behaviors needed to accomplish the program's goals. And the fourth was Be specific. Try new things and measure the results. And if you do, you might just improve your business. The first episode of Motivation Insiders is about rules because incentives require rules. And incentive programs rules impact the success of the program and you need good rules if you're going to get good results. Thanks to our sponsor, 110, for supporting our first time out with this episode. This podcast is a co-production of the IMA, IESP, and behavioral groups. And we heard from some terrific experts in this episode that you should be aware of. If you'd like to be in touch with them, their contact information is available in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.